following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. While you're doing that, wanted to say uh, thank you to, to all those who serve on our worship arts team, who uh, just do such a wonderful job each and every week, leading us really to the throne of grace as we sing together the word of God in song. Uh, these ladies and gentlemen work hard week in and week out, rehearsals during the week, early on Sunday morning to lead us, and they lead us so well and so grateful for uh, their contribution to leading us in worship on each and every Lord's Day consistently. I want to read to you two passages in Matthew chapter uh, 4, and then, well, one in chapter 4, and then one in chapter 10 to sort of set the, uh, the pace for us this morning. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 4, Matthew writes, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll make you fishers of men. And over in chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, in verse 1 and verse 5, it tells us, He called his twelve disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And down in verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we we open our hearts to you in these moments as we open up your word. We come this morning to deal with sort of a foundational matter for the life of our church as we sort of set a trajectory into the future that's built off of your word. We pray that you would give us clarity, that you would give us unity, that you would uh, inspire us, Lord, with the mission that you have set before us, that you've called us, that you have equipped us, and you have charged us with fulfilling. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your body in this place. And we thank you for the privilege of the mission field in which we find ourselves. We thank you that you've equipped us with every single thing we need to do precisely what you have designed us to do in this very place. So by your word this morning, uh, Lord, anchor us in the mission that you've set before us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Grace on the Ashley again. Uh, We particularly welcome those who are tuning in to us online this morning. Sometimes find myself oblivious to the fact that uh, apart from those who gather here in the building uh, on any given Sunday morning, there are always those who are in other places who are worshiping along with us as we open God's Word and we teach each and every week. And so if that's you this morning, we welcome you in either place. It's, it's a good morning for you to be here. It's a good morning for you to be tuning in. Uh, we're going to talk this morning about the mission of Grace on the Ashley. We're going to talk about what it is that God has designed us to do. Uh, we've sort of put new language to that to help us sort of, uh, sort, of, sort of grasp really clearly and precisely what it is that God has called us to do and who he's called us to be. Uh, we're going to talk some more about uh, mission this morning and it's going to be an important uh, sort of a, a time for us. I'm going to roll out this new mission statement and I'm going to sort of paint a big picture for you of of the broad scope of what it is that we are to be about as a church, what the future holds for us, how we're going to be looking at the things that we do and deciding what to do and what not to do and how we're going to be measuring whether we're doing it or not to some degree at least. I'll talk about that this morning. So I'll be painting in broad strokes and giving you the big picture. When we get to September, beginning September 8th, 
uh, 8, 16, and 22, we're going to sort of flesh out some of the details of the practical implications of what I'm going to paint in broad stroke. We're going to talk about making disciples and how the launch of city groups is an integral piece to our vision of being able to impact our community and reach people with the gospel. And then on the 16th, we're going to talk about how critical it is to be a part of serving in the body of Christ and serving the mission as we sort of have tagged that Sunday, Serve Sunday. And we're going to be talking very practically and laying out for you practical ways in which you can get on board with the mission we're going to lay out this morning. How you can be actively involved, not a, not a passive spectator, not somebody who's watching something play out, but somebody who's, who's suited up, who's on the field, who's in the game, moving the ball down the field. So we're going to be talking about that on the 16th. And then on the 22nd, uh, Pastor Britt is going to be fleshing out what he sort of teased in the welcome and announcements this morning about what it looks like for us to, to, to take the gospel and to impact the nations. And where does that begin for us in our local context as a church? And uh, some exciting Sundays coming in September to flesh out some of these details. But this morning, again, we just want to lay out a new mission statement for us. Some clear language to help us understand who we are and what we're to be about. It's important to know who you are. It's important to know what your mission is. Whether it's a human being in life or whether it's some sort of an organization that exists within the world. The business world knows that for a business to succeed, it has to have a clear mission. It has to know who it is. And it's, it's people who are a part of it have to have a very clear understanding of why the business exists, what it seeks to accomplish, and how their presence in that organization is helping move that, that organization down the field. And so it's, un, it's not uncommon for businesses to establish a mission statement that sort of summarizes what that mission is. And, and I'm gonna, we'll play a game with you this morning by way of introduction. I'm going to give you some mission statements that are out there and see if you can uh, guess what the business is behind the mission statement. Are you ready? Here's the first one. The mission statement is nothing. Um, oh, there it is. It is to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. What's the business? Do you know it? I mean, we, I wish I had an award because we got it right here on the front row. Absolutely. This is the mission statement for LinkedIn. How many of you have a profile on LinkedIn of some sort? You don't have to own it. That's all right. It's LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah, you can go ahead and roll the, the logo and we'll move to the next one. So that's LinkedIn. I think we have another one. All right. How, here's another one. How about this one? To organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Oh man, you guys are right on it. Google. That is Google. Of course it's Google. And that's what Google does. Now we're learning that they might be doing some other things too these days, but they're at least starting with that, right? At least starting with that. How about another? To help people around the world plan and have the perfect trip. Close, not Trivago. Not Travelocity. I heard Travelocity. I heard somebody say TripAdvisor, right? TripAdvisor. That's exactly the mission statement for TripAdvisor. And I use this, this, this group all the time to help people around the world plan and have a perfect... If you want to plan and have a perfect trip, go to TripAdvisor. They'll help you with that, right? How about another? To give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Close, but not Facebook. It is Twitter. That is Twitter. To give everyone the power to create and share ideas. If you have a, if you have a Twitter profile and you like to tweet, like a little birdie, that's, that's what you do. You, you, you share ideas and information and you can do it instantly and you can do it without barriers because that's, after all, what Twitter, that's what their mission is. Let's do another. Now, I was just somewhere this past uh, weekend as I took my son out of town, that I, that I saw this mission statement everywhere to refresh the world, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness, to create value and make a difference. It is not Disney World. You're not even close. Oh, I, I hear nothing. So this one has got you stumped finally, right? You're going to be surprised. Sh show us what it, oh, what'd you say? 
Oh, the, we have a patent uh, attorney here. Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola. I was at the Coca-Cola Museum place there in Atlanta this past weekend. And all throughout that place, and you see all the Coca-Cola paraphernalia. You see this language everywhere to refresh the world. That's what Coca-Cola set out to do. And by golly, I think they, they do refresh the world to inspire moments of optimism. How many of you remember uh, 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 this commercial somewhere along the way? Have a Coke and a, and a smile. Have a Coke and a smile. That's refreshing the world, creating optimism. That's their mission. They try to do that. Depending on whether you drink it or not, you could tell us if they actually do that. Oh, it's another one. Let's do one more. Okay, to prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. Yeah, that's an easy one. I threw you a softball on that one, the American Red Cross. All right, one last one. I think I have one more, don't I? Okay, here we go. Now, this is going to be a challenging one. We save people money so they can live better. Who said that? Ben! That, that's Walmart! That's Walmart. We save people money so they can live better. If you shop at Walmart, you save money, and you decide if it helps you live better. I don't know. I don't know. But that's at least what Walmart's trying to do. That's how they understand themselves and their mission. What's well, a fun game, right? And, and you understand that, that these businesses have to understand who they are and what they're about, and to some degree or the other, they hit those targets. But what I find is interesting is when it comes to, to church world and the church life, that there are, are many churches and many groups of believers and individual believers that really don't have much of a clue as to what the mission of the church really is, to what it's all about, to what it's set out to do, to why it exists and what it's after. The church just sort of does its things week after week, month after month, year after year, and it settles into some sort of a liturgy. It settles into some sort of a calendar of activities and events that happen. But nobody really knows why exactly do we do these and how do we know if they're working or they're not? How do we know if these are the right things that we could do or there's some other good things that we ought to be doing? And it's unclear because mission is, is quite often poorly defined. There are many churches who sort of define their mission or understand their mission and and evaluate their success simply on the basis of growth. The idea is we exist to sort of gather people, as many people as we can get, to come into a building and be with us on events or for worship services. That's why we exist, to gather people to do with us what we do. And many churches are driven by that mission alone, whether it's stated or unstated. Everything is driven around gathering people and numbers of folks that participate. Other churches are are sort of driven by a mission to see how big of a plant they can build, how many buildings they can put up, and, and house how many different kinds of ministries. And success is measured by how large the facility is and how many things are going on in that particular place. There are other places that measure success and, and evaluate their, their effectiveness and their mission by how much money they can raise and contribute and put to use. Some churches simply measure mission and success by just the the flat line of being able to preserve certain traditions. We exist to preserve traditions, to keep doing what we've always done, what people before us did. But I would suggest to you this morning, none of those things are sufficient missions. None of those things are sufficient evaluators for success. What we need is a clear biblical paradigm for biblical ministry. We need a clear benchmark for what is it that we're after? What are we trying to do? And how do we measure whether we are doing it or not? If we don't have that as a particular church, then the institution simply becomes an institution that exists in order to keep from dying. And that's what many churches do today. They just exist in order to keep from dying. Floating randomly from one thing to the next with no clear target. Someone said one time, if you never aim for anything, you'll hit your target every time. It's true. If you never aim for anything, you just shoot and you hit it. But here's what the elders have sort of honed in on as a clear mission statement for us. This is a revision of what we put out a couple of years ago to make it more concise, more clear, and more obvious exactly what we're after. The new mission statement is this. We at Grace on the Ashley exist to make mature and multiply disciples of Jesus. 
I want you to read that with me. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm going to get this out of the way right now because my son has already corrected me on it. I do not know how to pronounce properly the word mature, apparently. Because I say mature, and he says, Dad, what are you saying? And I said, well, how am I supposed to say it? He said, mature. And I said, it's not spelled M-A-C-H-U-R-E. It's M-A-T-U-R-E. And he says, I don't care how it's spelled. It's mature. So, hands up. Is it mature or mature? Mature? Mature. All right. We're in the South, and thus far, moving forward, I shall say mature. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Jesus. It's a really simple statement. It makes clear that as a church, we exist to accomplish three things. And they all begin with an M so you can remember them. Make disciples, mature disciples, and multiply disciples. There are three different things, but there are three different things that are not independent of one another. They're all dependent upon one another, and they're all simply parts of one process that we're seeking to accomplish in the lives of those that we have influence with. They're biblical, they're critical, and the bottom line is this. We're answering the question, if God gives us the wonderful privilege of being able to intersect with the life of somebody for some period of time, somebody who walks into to, to this ministry via coming to a worship service or coming through a city group or coming through some other avenue into the life of our church and they do not know Christ, what do we want to be able to accomplish? What do we see as our mission in the life of that person if we have them for three to five years or longer? Well, we want, to th- we want three things to happen. Our mission in their life is to see them come to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they, be, that they be made a disciple of Jesus, to make them a disciple of Jesus. We do that by bringing the gospel to bear in their life, to talking to them about Jesus Christ died buried, raised. We talk to them about what it means to be a sinner and to be in rebellion against your creator and to understand that there are wages of our sin and that wage of our sin is death, eternal separation from God and we're utterly and completely hopeless apart from God doing for us what we could never do or earn for ourselves. And he did that very thing for us because he loved us by sending his only begotten son to die, to live a perfect life, to die, be buried and raised that we might place our faith in him and the divine exchange that we just sang about, sang about might take place. Our sin nailed to his cross and buried with him, his righteousness transferred to our account and we're made alive in him. That is what a person needs to understand in general to be made a disciple. And we hope that if somebody who doesn't know Christ that intersects our ministry, our mission in their life begins with bringing the gospel to bear in their world, that they might be made a disciple of Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Once they've been made a disciple of Jesus, we have another responsibility. The mission shifts in relationship to that person. We now have the responsibility to mature them in their faith. Excuse me, to mature them in their faith. To ground them in the Word of God. To teach them the Word of God. To help them develop a clear and robust theology to give them a command of the scriptures so that they can hide it in their heart and be able to live it out in their lives. We want to mature them in their faith. We want to teach them the word of God. But that isn't the end either. We want to then be able to multiply ministry through them. That is, we want to be able to equip them that at the end of the three years, at the end of the five years, when, when life takes them to some new location, or we launch them out of here in some ministry form, we want to have the responsibility, it is our responsibility, to equip them, to build them up, to show them how to go out and do ministry and to multiply the ministry that we are uh, imparting to them. At the end of three to five years with somebody, those are the things that are our mission. We want them to make them a disciple of Jesus, mature them in their faith, and equip them to the place where they can go out and do ministry on their own, therefore multiplying the ministry that we started in them. Does that make sense? It's really quite simple. It's not particularly novel. It's not novel at all, in fact, because it's built off of the ministry of Jesus. It's precisely what Jesus Christ himself did in very clear and vivid ways. 
The most foundational thing to any church is the ability to make disciples or the call to make disciples. It's the the responsibility to take the gospel into a world with lost people who don't know Christ, share the gospel, and call them to faith in Jesus. It is the foundational mission of every church. It should be, in fact. Before I go too far with that, let's just define the word disciple since it's in that statement. The word disciple is simply follower. Just simply a follower. We're to make followers of Jesus. We're to mature, fo- mature followers of Jesus. I'm going to do that all morning. Mature followers of Jesus and then multiply people who can then go out and help others become followers of Jesus. If you have your Bible and you want to flip over to John chapter 1, you can do that. But we, we, in John chapter 1, we encounter Jesus. And we encounter him meeting his first followers, his first disciples. And John gives us the narrative of what happened beginning in verse 35. He tells us the next day John was standing by two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist. And he looked at Jesus and as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. That is, they became disciples. Jesus turned and saw them following to them, following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come. You'll see. So they came where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found out, uh, found his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you're Simon the son of John? You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Again, just a clear example of what does Jesus start doing foundationally as a part of his ministry. He goes to people, and he calls them to follow him. He makes them disciples. He, he calls Andrew, and he calls Peter, and then he later calls Philip. And it's a simple call. It's come follow me. It's, it's abandon whatever pursuit you've been pursuing for this point in your life and follow after me. Now, John doesn't flesh it out fully in this, in this particular text, but the, the idea is that Jesus invested in those men who he was. He told, him, he, he told them who he was, the Messiah. It's clear because Andrew went to Peter, and he had a clear understanding of who Jesus was. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. So Christ clearly laid that out for him, helped him understand what it means to follow him, to be a believer in him, to be a Christian. This is the first time we see Jesus calling these men to follow him. And it's a call to salvation. He revealed to them who he was. He revealed to them their need, their desperate need for him. They responded to that by faith, trust, and they were saved. They believed him. They followed him. They became disciples. It's the first and foremost thing that Jesus did was to make disciples. He did evangelism. It's the most basic thing that is the mission of any church, and it should be the most basic part of the mission of our church, is to find people who don't know Christ, people who are far from God, and bring the gospel to bear in their lives and call them to become followers of Jesus. Call them to abandon their life of self-pleasure, their life of self selfishness in general call them to abandon their sin and pursue Christ we can do a lot of things in in church life in church ministry but if we fail to do this we failed fundamentally at the first part of what the mission of the church is we can make people feel good we can help them with physical needs we can provide ministries that bless people but if we're not sharing our faith if we're not calling lost people to become followers of Jesus then we're missing the mission altogether because that's where it begins. Wherever Jesus went, this is what he did. He exposed people's sin and he showed them who he was. He showed them that they had a thirsty soul and that if they would just come to him and drink, they would find satisfaction, that they would find delight, that they would find all that they need for life, for blessedness in this world and to come. He did that in a kind and loving and restorative way. He never did it in a confrontational, sort of condemning way. He engaged people. He found out where they were. He built a bridge to them. And in a kind, loving, restorative way, he called them to a better life in following him. A gentleman by the name of Paul Little in his book, How to Give Away Your Faith, defines witnessing this way. He says, witnessing 
or evangelism, if you will, or to use our language, making disciples, is the deep-seated conviction that the greatest favor I can do for others is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. It is the deep-seated conviction that the greatest favor I can do for others is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that's the greatest favor you could do for anybody? It's greater than giving them a meal. It's greater than caring for their physical needs. It's greater than helping them find some sort of justice in their life. It's greater than providing ministry that makes them smile and feel good. The greatest favor that I can do, that you can do for somebody, is to introduce them to Jesus Christ and call them to follow him. Jesus did this all the time. He did it privately. He walks up to a woman sitting by a well and he sits down and he engages her in a conversation. He engages her in a conversation about her life. And in that conversation, he exposes to her who he is. Calls her to faith in him. He walks into the scene in another event where uh, a, a, a circle of Pharisees, religious Pharisees, arrogant religious people, have circled around a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery and they're about to stone her to death. And Jesus walks into that and, and turns the whole, the whole scene upside down and engages this woman in a brief conversation that showed her who he was. Walks through town and he looks up and sees a man named Zacchaeus in a tree because he's short and can't see him. He says, Zacchaeus, let's go to your house. I'd like to have dinner with you. And he talks to him about his need for a savior and reveals to him that he is that very savior. Jesus was all about making disciples. He did it publicly, like in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, where it tells us that sometime around uh, a big celebration time, the last day, John tells us, the great day of the feast, Jesus stands up in the middle of a crowd and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so Jesus in public and in private, that's what he was about, calling people to follow him. He cared about making disciples. He offered forgiveness. He offered eternal life. He offered restoration to anyone who would repent, believe, and follow him. But his ministry didn't end there. It didn't stop there. Although that was foundational to what he did, it was the first piece of what he did. It never ended there. His call to follow him was never an end of itself. It was a call to then move into the next phase of his mission, which was to help them mature in their faith. The call to follow was always a call to enter into a training program. And that training program always had a view to an end, and that end would be that the one who came and followed would enter the training program, mature in their faith, and then be launched out to multiply the ministry that he poured into them. We see that in Matthew chapter 4, what we read at the beginning, where he says, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew. They were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, this is not the first time he's called them to follow him. This is the second time, at least, that he's called to them. He's already encountered them in the way that we read in John chapter 1. And now he encounters them a different way. And he says to them, come follow after me, and I'm going to make you into something that you are not currently. I'm going to make you into something that you're not. Come follow after me. You followed me in faith and believing. You've now become my disciples. Now I'm calling you into a training program where I'm going to transform you from who you are now into someone different. I'm going to take you from where you are and I'm going to lead you through a process where I'm going to deepen and ground and anchor your faith and I am going to transform you from being a fisherman who fishes for fish into somebody who is capable and equipped and sent to go fish for people. He's calling them into a process of maturity. A maturity. And the church needs to understand this. We need to understand this as a church. It's not sufficient simply to call people to follow Jesus. It's not sufficient for a church, for our church's mission to be just about that first piece of making disciples. It is a critical piece, but it is not, the mission is not complete at that point. 
We don't stop just because people choose to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's more to the mission. We have to invest in people to help them mature in their faith, mature in their faith. We're not content as a church to gather a large group of baby believers and facilitate a means by which they can stay in perpetual immaturity. We're called to call people to faith and follow Jesus, and then we are called to invest the Word of God in their lives to mature them and ground them in their faith, to help them develop a a deep and abiding and robust understanding of the Word of God that will bear fruit in their life and transform them from who they were to who Christ has them becoming. Now, much of the modern evangelical world, this is not in vogue and it's not in fashion. Many segments of the, of the Christian church in America seems very content with just making disciples and there's little or no appetite to mature believers. They're perfectly content to allow the church body to perpetually live in the shallow end of the swimming pool, never trained to go into the deep end. And frankly, there's not much sadder in human life than to go to the, to the, to the pool and see a big grown-up in the shallow end scared to go to the deep because he's never been trained to, to survive out there. It's okay to see a little kid there. But sadly, many churches are filled with adult believers who live theologically in the shallow end of the pool because nobody has taken up the mission of maturing them in their faith and teaching them the Word of God helping them develop a sound and robust theology and an understanding of this book and what God has to say to us in it and how it all fits together and how all that comes to bear in the life and how that is to flesh out in the way that we live. You hear comments like, well, doctrine is boring or doctrine is divisive. All people really need is the basic gospel and faith. Listen, if that were true, the Bible would be a much shorter book than it is. People need a mature and robust faith to survive. The basics of the gospel are certainly sufficient to save a man or to save a woman. But listen, if you're going to sustain a Christian life through the long haul of life, through the ups and downs, when the winds start blowing in your life, when you're going through discouragement and pain and grief, and life doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out, and people die that you love, and so on and so forth, if you want a faith that sustains you through that, it better be a mature faith, a faith that is grounded in the deep truths of Scripture that buoy your life when things go south. One of the reasons so many people go out of the back door of the church these days is because nobody's ever matured them in their faith. And life happens and because they don't understand the word and they've never grown beyond sort of spiritual infancy, they get blown off their kilter and they walk right out the back door. We have to mature people in their faith so that when discouragement comes, they don't give up. So that when disappointment in life happens, they have a resource to be able to navigate that with grace and dignity. So that when pain arrives that they didn't expect and that they didn't ask for and it won't go away, they have some resource for how do I go on living in deep and abiding pain. So that when, as happened to a family that I was previously close to in earlier days of ministry this week, when somebody drives out of town and never comes back because they take their own life. You have some resource to deal with that. It takes a mature faith to walk through those seasons. And it's the church's responsibility to mature disciples. It is my job, it is my responsibility to mature you in your faith, to help you grow in your understanding of God's word and how that applies to the deep and hard and painful realities of your life. I had another conversation this week with an old friend. He was telling me about something that happened to his wife. His wife had grown up in a Christian home. Mother and father went to church all the time. Took her and her sisters and brother along to church. And they'd grown up in the church. Her father now was an old man who was uh, in the later years of his life. Had moved to Charleston and found out he had Alzheimer's. As Alzheimer's began to take root, he called his whole family together. And here's what he said to them. He said to them, I've lived a Christian life and been a part of the church my whole life, and now I've come to believe it was all in vain. 
Look at my body. Look at what God has done to me. What a sad testimony. A sad reality of somebody who misunderstood the gospel at the beginning. He foolishly believed that being a Christian meant I do Christian things and therefore God keeps me from pain or bad things. And that's never the gospel. And nobody in all those years of being in a church helped that man mature in his faith and taught him what the scriptures actually teach about walking with Christ. And so as an old man, he walked away. And his testimony that he left for his whole family was that it's all a waste. Listen, we have to ground people in the Word of God. How do you mature people in their faith? You invest them with the Word of God. You teach them the Word of God, all of it, front to back, all the words that are in there, the black ones and the red ones, okay? The hard ones and the easy ones. It's why foundationally as a church, we normally work verse by verse through books of the Bible because we believe that's foundationally important to help you mature in your faith, that you understand robustly the whole text of what Scripture has to say. Everything that God has left and said to you, we want to say it to you and help you understand it and apply it to your life because it's through that exchange that maturity begins to develop in you, particularly as you go out and live those things in the give and take of your life. Part of, key part of our mission is we have to mature people in their faith. The call to follow Jesus has always been a, a, a call to first follow him and then to learn, grow, mature, and develop. And we do that by teaching the word of God. And that's the responsibility of the church. And so we try to do that through expository preaching. We try to do that through Bible education. We try to do that through practical training on how we live and how we know what to do and how to wrestle through the hard things and make sense of all of this stuff that we find in Scripture that isn't always on the surface. And as we wrestle through those things, God develops a maturity in us. And I see it in your lives when, when the winds of life blow in and things happen to you that you haven't asked for. And I sit down with you and I hear you begin to even say through tears sometimes the word of God that's been invested in you. And you're buoyed through pain and you're buoyed through discouragement and grief because there's a maturity to your faith that doesn't get kicked aside when life gets hard. So as a church, that's a key element of what we're about. We care about making disciples, and we care about maturing disciples. But it's not enough just to make disciples and mature disciples. There's a third piece to this, and it's built off of Matthew 4, that same conversation Jesus says, where he says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So the idea here is, come follow me. You've already followed me in faith. Now follow me into this training program where I'm going to make you into something that you're not, and that something that I'm going to make you into is precisely a duplicate in some ways of what I am, a fisher of men. The goal of this whole thing is part number three, that my ministry gets multiplied through your life. That I will mature you in such a way that I now equip you to go out and do for other people what I'm doing for you. And thereby the ministry is multiplied. I'll make you a fisher of men. I'll make you a ministry multiplier. You see, it's not sufficient for the church to stop at just making disciples, but it's also not sufficient for the church to stop at just making disciples and maturing disciples. If we cut the process off there, if we cut the mission off right there, there's a lot of dangers that take place because what begins to develop if you shut it down right there and say that that's the end of our calling and that's the end of our mission is you end up with a church full of people who are very heady but disconnected from the world around them. A bunch of people who love to sit around and discuss theology while the world around them is burning and dying and going to hell. You end up with a church full of people that develop a coldness for the lost around them. That develop an arrogance with their knowledge. That become cynical and critical and judgmental. If all we care about is maturing our faith. That third pillar is important. We have to be about making disciples, maturing disciples, and we have to be about multiplying. Equipping people to go and do ministry. Equipping people to get out and do it. 
And ultimately, a piece of that is planting churches filled with people that we've equipped who can go out and replicate what's going on in this particular location, taking the gospel into another place, helping people there be made into disciples, mature in their faith, and multiply to another location. The circle is complete and the mission is done. If we've got somebody three to five years, if we've made them a disciple, matured them, and we've launched, equipped them and launched them out to go out and be a ministry multiplier, that's the mission. That's what we're about. Herschel Hobbes said this, the work of evangelism is never complete until the one evangelized becomes an evangelizer. It's a simple way of saying exactly what we're saying. In Matthew chapter 10, just a couple of chapters after this encounter in Matthew chapter 4, there's a period of time that's gone by at this point. It says that Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. He gave them authority to drive out spirits, heal evil, every disease and sickness. And these 12 Jesus sent out. He sent them out. That's the third pillar of the mission of the church. He called them, he trained them, and he sent them. He sent them. They were not saved to sit and watch. They were not educated for the sake of education. They were saved and taught so that they could go and multiply ministry. Listen, you need to understand something very, very clearly. Christian ministry is not for professionals only. That is not how the church is set up. It's not how it ought to operate. Christian ministry is not for professionals only. That is not a biblical idea at all. It is an idea that I've encountered many times in the life of church ministry over the last 20 years or so is people who think that ministry happens because ministers, paid ministers, go do ministry and believers come and receive. That's a piece of it, but that's not all of it. The biblical picture is actually one of all gathered believers doing ministry together. It's, it's the church of, of, of gathered believers who've been made disciples, who are coming together and as a group maturing together with a goal that we all go out and we do ministry together. We multiply the work of ministry together. You do what God's called you to do. I do what God's called me to do. And we encourage and assist one another in that venture. My job is to do the ministry God's called me to and to equip you to be able to send you that you might be able to multiply what I do. If I've done my job well, I should be able to teach you to do everything that I do and hopefully do it better so that you can go do it somewhere else. Now, God may not call you to do it in a vocational sense the way that I do it. He may call you to do it in some other sense, in some other phase of life. He's got some other plan for you than he has for me, and that's okay. We're not building clones here, you know, like Star Wars clone warriors or something. We're just trying to say, here's ministry. Call people to follow, mature in their faith, and then go help other people do that same thing wherever God gives you the opportunity to do it. Whatever zone he plants you in, whatever people come into your circle. The goal for the church and the mission for the church is to be about that ministry where we're making disciples, maturing disciples, and all of us are ministry multipliers who are going out there being sent to go do to go do and when the church is operating according to that mission in a robust sort of a sense the person who stands here and does what I do on Sunday mornings is not the most critical piece in the big picture I can drop dead tomorrow and the ministry keeps going some other, some other person stands up here and does this but the ministry takes place because the people of God are equipped and they're ministry multipliers who are out there doing the work of the ministry 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Paul writes to Timothy, These things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. You see, Paul is modeling Jesus' ministry, teaching the same principle. He's saying to Timothy, Timothy, I've discipled you. You've been made a disciple. I've invested in maturing you, and I've now sent you out. Now, what you're to do, Timothy, is to take everything that I've invested in you, and you multiply that by finding other men and go do that with them, and then teach them to do what you've done to them, and they do it to other people, and the ministry grows. And the gospel goes. It's like a relay race. Paul says, I pass the baton to you. You take the next leg, Timothy, and you run the next course until you get to that next guy, and you pass the baton to him so he runs the next leg. 
And in every one of our lives, there's somebody that's passed the baton to us, and there's somebody that we need to pass the baton on to. Grace on the Ashley exists to make disciples, call people to Jesus, to be followers, to mature disciples, ground people in the Word of God so that their faith is anchored in deep and abiding truth so that the Word of God is hidden in the heart and it's understood in the mind and it's lived out in the life. And then we multiply disciples by equipping people and providing them opportunity and encouragement to go, to be sent. Back at the beginning of the year in January, we talked about this idea, the second, sort of the second leg of this, the growing in order to go. And I gave you some statistics. I want to give them, bring them back to you as we think about moving into the, this next season of church life, particularly in the fall as we launch city groups. Some statistics. Our zip code, 29414. Do you remember how many people live here? 29414, just our zip code. 40,727 people. 40,000. By 2022, that's projected to be 44,518. If you just draw a five-mile radius around the building where we sit this morning, just over about 100,000 people within five miles. Within the next, I don't know if it's the next 10 or or 15 years, we've got 6,000 homes being built within a very close radius to our church. I don't know where they're going to go or whether they're going to be given helicopters to fly, but they're coming. By 2020, the population in a five-mile radius is projected to be 107,000. Well, that's not a real number on your screen. That should be 107,692. It's more than double the U.S. average, the growth in our five-mile radius. What's precisely important about those numbers is that when it comes to faith involvement of that population, there's about 30% that indicate they have zero faith involvement. Zero. Within that population, there's another 29% that say they have moderate faith involvement. You can define moderate faith involvement. That means maybe we attended service on Easter or Christmas or something like that. Or somebody asked me if I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian because... My parents are Christian or whatever. Look at those numbers of people. It's a total of 59% of people in our zip code, about 24,000 people who have little or no faith involvement at all. There's a lot of people out there that need to be made disciples of Jesus, that need the gospel to intersect with their lives, that need to hear about sin and a savior who need to be called to become followers of Jesus. That's a lot of people who need to be matured in their faith and grown up and grounded in the word of God. That's an awful lot of people that can be harnessed and sent to multiply ministry, to change the city, to change the region, in fact, to change the world. But it all begins with a simple group like the one that's gathered here in this room this morning. It all begins with a group like this embracing that mission and saying, yes, that resonates in my heart. That is what Jesus was about, and it's what I want to be about. At the end of that sermon in in January, I asked you to consider three questions. And the questions were these. What does it look like for Grace on the Ashley to go into this city the nation and the world? What does it look like? Well, we're going to help you in the next couple of months to flesh that out and to provide you opportunities to actually do that and to show you what it looks like through city groups, through an opportunity to go to Ethiopia, and through other means that come along the way. I asked you a second question. I said, can we be content to continue gathering within these walls, doing what we do while the world around us burns? Can we be content with that? I hope the answer in your heart has been and still is no, we cannot. And that led to the third question. It's the same question I leave you with today. What fears, what preferences, what theological barriers, what sins are holding us back from accomplishing that mission? What fears, what preferences, what theological barriers, 
what sins are holding us back from becoming a church that is known in this city, in this state, and all around the world as a church who makes disciples for Jesus, who matures people in their faith, and who equips them and multiplies them out in the world to do the work of the King. To accomplish that mission, it's not sufficient for it to land on my lap. Our staff isn't capable of doing that by ourselves. If it's up to us, in fact, the scope of ministry will be really small and it will be lopsided because we only have certain gifts and we only have certain opportunities. But with you, the sky's the limit. The possibilities are endless. We can take a huge dent out of that number that you just saw on the screen if we get serious about it. But what's holding you back from fully engaging that mission? As we close our eyes and bow your heads as we wrap this up this morning, I want you to just to consider that mission. And I want you to consider what would stop you from fully engaging that mission. What things get in the way? What things about life need to change? What priorities need to shift? What sins need to be confessed, repented of, and turned away from right now? What changes need to be made in your time schedule and your availability to do the work of the kingdom? Whatever it is, I pray that the Spirit of God would show you as we pray, and that He would call you to Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to be in the back of the room here in just a moment as we stand to sing. I invite you to just come back and talk with me. I would love to go off privately and talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. Give me that privilege. Jesus, we thank you for our opportunity to worship you this morning, for the opportunity to sing, the opportunity to pray, and the opportunity to consider what it is that you've called us to as a church. Not what you've called the church down the street to do or be or some other church in some other place, but this church in this place. There's not a one of us that's a part of it that's a part by accident. You've called us here. You've established us here. You've united our hearts for the work in this place, in this city. And so, God, I pray that you would burn this mission into our hearts. That off the top of our tongues, we would say, we're a part of a church that makes and matures and multiplies disciples for Jesus. And that that would not just be a slogan, then it would be the reality. Lord, as you, by your Spirit, reveal to us the things that are in the way, keeping us from participating and being a part of accomplishing that mission, I pray that you would just call people to repentance this morning, that they would just turn from things that are in the way, that they would just get rid of that stuff. They would die to fears and die to preferences and die to theological barriers, sins that are holding them back. And that they would be fully engaged in the work you've set us out to do in whatever way they can. Lord, use this church for your glory as a light in this city, we pray. For your sake and your honor, amen.